Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Witeka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Well, happy Monday to all of you out there. I'm very excited because my guest today is Robert Stupak, and Robert describes himself because we, as you can imagine, I get to know my guests a little bit before we go on the air. He describes himself as an author, an adventurer, and a discoverer. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you very much for having me, Marsha. I'm glad to be here. My my pleasure. Um, As I mentioned how you would describe yourself, I think it's really important to note that you are also that and so much more. You are an art aficionado, and we will be talking about Norman Rockwell and your relationship to his paintings and your patent and also your book, Drake's Treasure. You are a very interesting man, and I'm excited to have you have the opportunity to share your passions with my guests. It's live, so when I say something wrong and I hear it, I try to correct it. You're going to be sharing it with our audience. So if you could just spend a moment or two and just tell the audience a little bit about your background so we can get to know you a little bit better. Sure, I'd be happy to, Marcia. Uh I I grew up in a town called Rockville Center, New York. It's a suburb of New York City, about 25 miles outside of Manhattan. I went to Penn State University, where I was an accounting major and graduated in 1978 with a BS in accounting. And while I was at Penn State, I was fortunate enough to be inducted into an honorary society known as Skull and Bones. When I graduated from Penn State, I went directly to Manhattan and worked for Price Waterhouse, where I was an auditor and worked in the tax department for a total of about five years. And then after that, I worked in the securities industry uh, for a number of the major brokerage firms, and I was a fixed income institutional salesman. So I did that, and then I finished up my career as uh, running small businesses because uh, my financial background uh, I enjoyed managing some of these small businesses that needed help when somebody would go on maternity leave where they became ill and they needed a long-term, uh, you know, somebody to fill in for them long-term. So that, uh, that was what I did while I was working. I'm currently retired and in loving it. <laughs> oh, I know. And, and you're no longer in New York. Is that correct? That's correct. I live in Novato, California, which is in Marin County, and that is just north of San Francisco. It's over the Golden Gate Bridge on the way to wine country. That's how most people would know it. And I have been through that area many times. It's it's absolutely lovely. I had a my I had I have a son that went to San Jose State, and we went up in that area very very often. So uh, this is really interesting, and I think that. As we as we delve into your topic, which is just fascinating, I guess I would like to know this about you before we get into Norman Rockwell. Have you always been interested in art? Yes, I have. I've oh, I've always enjoyed art, and at, uh, I've had collected art over a number of years. I actually enjoy the work of Peter Max. Uh, I've collected mm. blacklight posters. I've collected all types of art. I have an eclectic style of what I like. That's cool. I you know, art is like music. It it speaks to you, doesn't it? I and everybody sees it through the the lens of their own eyes and what how it touches them. I I I I also enjoy art. Is there a specific genre that you lean to? It sounds like you have a pretty eclectic taste. Well, I, I actually like realistic art, and uh, I actually enjoy the illustration art along 
uh, similar to what Norman Rockwell has done throughout his career. So mm-hmm. I, I like all types. I like Puantisma. I like realism. I'm not a big abstract art fan. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And what about subjects? Does it matter what the subject matter is, or does it just go along with the realistic art form that you enjoy? The subject matter is not as important to me as the realism. Got it. It's funny, if you were to come into my home and you were to look around because there's hardly a wall that's not something on it, people will say, well, what is it about this that you like? And for me, it's generally, it's, it is the subject, but the subject is typically also the color. I'm very much drawn to the colors of the fall colors, and you'll in my house you would see a lot of those reds and oranges, and some people are and greens. Some people are, are blue people, and they like blue art. But um, I do think that art really enhances our lives. And um, with Norman Rockwell, for people that don't really have a a good memory about Norman Rockwell himself, I thought maybe you could just share a little bit of history to just bring Norman Rockwell into our conversation. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, Norman Rockwell grew up in New York City, and at the age of 16, he went off to attend art school because he was very interested in art. And prior to World War II, Mr. Rockwell worked as an illustrator, a staff artist for Boys Life magazine, and as a cover artist for the Saturday Evening Post. And that's what most people, you know, know his work is from the Saturday Evening Post. But yeah. the interesting thing that's related to uh, my, my authentication process is that a regular feature in every issue of Boy's Life magazine involved finding a hidden image within a picture. And I know every time I ever went to a doctor's office or a dentist's office as, as a child, they always had Boy's Life magazine. And I would always look at that section of the magazine and try to find the hidden picture within the picture. You know, that's so, really funny because uh, I wouldn't have not remembered that that's where it was in Boys Life magazine. But just like you described it, those magazines were always at the dentist. They were always at the doctor's office. And there was always that challenge of finding the hidden image within the picture so i i can truly we're of similar age and i can truly relate to what you're saying and and it was it was a challenge wasn't it i mean you just wanted to find it well fortunately i found them pretty easily (laughs) (laughs) well good for you oh man so you did you didn't know that that was going to end up you know much like i've always been talking my whole life who knew where i'd end up you know, for you, that who knew that that's where you were going to end up? But it is it is really interesting um, uh, how how at a young age we are influenced by things. So, if we if we look back to sort of the history of of where we're going in this conversation, I understand that I believe it was in 1999 you invested in a 1943 painting of Norman Rockwell's studio. That was um, from West Arlington, um, Vermont. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Okay, and why did why um, what was it about that 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 you wanted to purchase that 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 painting? Well, I, I met a fellow by the name of Paul De Bernardis in 1999 when I answered an ad that was placed in the San Francisco Chronicle uh, by a man selling his art collection, and Paul was 80 years old at the time. He lived up in Petaluma, and when I went to his home. His house was filled with art of all types. And in the 1960s, Paul was a high-profile character on the New York art and literary scene, and he collected all sorts of things. And at one time, he had an enormous book collection, rare book collection. And when we met, he had just uh, gotten out of the hospital. He'd survived cancer, and he was selling his lifelong art collection. He had owned a number of art galleries around uh, Uh, around the United States and he had everything stored in some storage units up at Petaluma and he had a lot of it in his house. So I walked in and every step of the staircase had, you know, pictures, all, everything was piled up all over the place. And after I bought several pieces, either because I love the artist or the subject matter, 
Um, I asked him if he had anything that could appreciate significantly. And on my next visit, because I went up there several times, he brought out the Rockwell painting and he told me that it should be worth considerably more money in four or five years after the national tour of Rockwell's works, which began in the year 2000. And at the time I went ahead, I believe Paul, and I purchased the work for $40,000. He wrote me a statement of provenance on June 30th, 1999. And the story behind where it had come from was quite interesting. He uh, wrote the name that this, he had purchased it from the Associated American Artist Gallery in New York and that the gallery owner told him it had come from the Kepler family. And the Kepler family was one of the leading people in publications and especially illustrations. Uh, there was a magazine in the 1800s called Puck, and it was a very famous magazine. And uh, he, Mr. Kepler had a, a son, and I believe that he and Norman Rockwell were associated. And somehow, uh, Norman Rockwell was very generous. He gave away a lot of paintings, and he uh, probably gave this painting to Kepler as a gift. So that was that was how I uh, got started on this thing. Was that your first? I mean, somebody that isn't doesn't collect art, so I have no concept of what people spend on art. Was that your first major purchase of of a piece of art for that kind of money, or had you already started collecting art like that as well? Well, no, I had a lot of other pieces of art, but I'd never spent that kind of money. Um, I had some film work posters. Uh, I picked up some pieces, uh, some Peter Max uh, paintings or works from Paul De Bernardis. I, As I said, I had a variety of different things, just nothing that I paid that kind of money for. Right. But you understood from your buddy that this was this was an investment that you expected to um, appreciate, and so it was an investment with the intention of of having it be worth more money as time went by. So I, I understand right. that. But what what happened next after you you have this this painting? Okay, so I picked it up in 1999, and then I sat on it for a couple of years. Maybe this the tour of Norman Rockwell's works was going to be completed, I believe, in 2003 or 2004. So around that time, I started to get interested in having it authenticated, and I sent the painting to my father in New York because uh, the Norman Rockwell Museum is relatively close to where they lived. So he took the he took the painting to the museum, and they first of all they're not allowed to authenticate anything, but they told him that they didn't think that the signature matched any known Norman Rockwell signature. As most people mm-hmm. may recognize, Norman Rockwell's signature is usually one. It, it almost looks like a stencil. It's usually block printing um, for the most part. But he also did sign some things in, in a script or cursive. But in my particular situation, it's a simply signed Rockwell, and it's in Printing. It's in regular hand printing. Mm-hmm. They didn't match it, and they, they wouldn't really authenticate it. So I just figured, okay, maybe you know I'll work on this down the road. And I hung the pictures sitting right across uh, from my desk that I sat at every day, and just really enjoyed the painting because the, the scene is is a beautiful scene. Uh, you might describe it what it looks like from your end. Well, it's the picture um, that I've posted on my blog where there's the red building, correct? And um, yes. there's a bridge, and there appears to be snow. And I thought actually that there was snow on the roof, but I've come to learn that that was not actually what I was looking at. <clears throat> but we are talking about that particular picture, are we not? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Okay. And what this painting is, is of Norman Rockwell's studio in Arlington, Vermont. And to the best of my knowledge, this is the only picture ever painted by Mr. Rockwell of his studio. Now, mm-hmm. if, 
people who know something about Rockwell history, uh, this studio burned down in 1943. And he lost many of his personal effects and things that he had collected over the years. And he was devastated by this. So mm-hmm. the, the, the painting, there's a, there's a lot of symbolism in the painting, but uh, that is the subject matter. And the building that sits in the forefront of the painting is a picture of his studio that burned down. And when I was investigating this entire matter, I found a uh, almost like a cartoon or a comic strip that Norman Rockwell had drawn showing the firemen coming to put it out and uh, how his kids reacted to it. And I cut that picture of the house or the studio out and I laid it directly over the picture of the Burns studio in the painting, and they matched perfectly, right mm-hmm. down to where the hole in the roof was for where the fire burned through it. Right. How interesting. What, what I'm so curious about, was there anything that made you think that what you purchased wasn't the real deal? Did you, was there, what, what was... I, I guess I'm just wondering what made you even question whether it was truly an original painting by Norman Rockwell. Well, I, I began to, after it came back from, uh, you know, my father, eventually he sent the, the painting back and it, it was hanging in my house again. Um, mm-hmm. I, I didn't think there was any reason that Paul DiBernardis would have made up a story and sold me something that wasn't uh, wasn't real or authentic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I began to look and see if Mr. Rockwell was known, you know, for signing his picture in any other fashion. And at the beginning of car- his career, he a couple of paintings had been, were were simply signed Rockwell, and then he changed it up a little bit, and he had it NP. Rockwell, and then eventually that the P was his middle initial, and his name was Percival. And eventually he dropped the middle initial and simply started signing things Norman Rockwell. So it was a little bit unusual, but there were other cases where he had simply signed things as Rockwell. Was it always so in I didn't, the same I didn't location? Question. But, I'm did, sorry. Because you, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. What was was his signature? Whether it was the NPR, or it was just Rockwell, or it was however, did he always do it in the same location on whatever he painted? So, for, um, of the paintings that I've looked at and studied, yes, he generally it went on the bottom right hand corner, but not every time. On my mm-hmm. painting, not quite in the middle of the painting. It's in. I'd say it's in the in the lower right quadrant of the painting, but uh, generally, as so, as we see in in most covers, uh, you know, Saturday evening post covers, it's down on the right hand bottom right hand corner. All right, but something obviously just drew you to figuring this out. I mean, something something. Something drew you to want to determine if indeed this forty thousand dollar painting that now hopefully has, you know, continued to appreciate to an even greater value. You want to, you know, how, how do you prove it? You know, you you presume that it's accurate. You you bought it from a reputable person, but I think that your curiosity and sort of your tenacity and curiosity just drew you to really thinking about. You know, is it is it the real deal? Is it, how did I don't, I'm just curious what what drew you to want to even determine it to start with? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I sat with this painting sitting directly across from my desk. I looked at it every day, and then suddenly one day in 2016, 17 years after I purchased the painting, I noticed the initials NR in the bridge, which is the focal point of my painting. There's a little bridge that connects the studio to his uh, picture of his house, which sits in the background. And I sat there and looked at it, and I had never noticed this before. And hmm. that was what got me thinking, uh, you know, here they couldn't authenticate it via the signature, yet the initials NR are in this bridge. 
So, you know, I, I started to do some research at that point, and nothing in the Norman Rockwell Museum archives, on the Internet, there were no stories or articles or printed books on or about Mr. Rockwell that mentioned that he hid his name in paintings. Hmm. So that is what actually got me started on investigating, you know, whether he did, whether he, he did hide his name in some fashion in the paintings and whether there were any other types of, of what I would call anti-forgery techniques so that nobody could either copy his work or falsely attribute a work to him. Right. So how did you determine that his initials and other information were hidden in the painting? What what did you do? Okay, I started, I, I looked at 100 of Norman <laughs> Rockwell's paintings, and that was that were 90 regular paintings. And Norman Rockwell actually did a lot of portraits of famous people. So I included 10 portraits uh, that he had done. And I took a look at them. And I did notice another anti-forgery technique. And it had to do with a couple of different shapes that appeared in every one of the paintings, of the, the 90 non-portrait paintings. And I, I will describe these as the M and the football helmet. And what they were was ways in which he hid his name in the painting. If you, if you were to see the M, it's, it's like an M with a, a, a fourth leg on it. And that actually contains the first name Norman uh, when, when, when you play with it. And the other shape that he used for many years was I call the football helmet shape. And if you took a jumble of letters of the last name Rockwell, you could fit them directly inside the shape of the helmet. And he used hmm. this technique uh, for many years. He used it uh, from the beginnings, I'd say, 1916, uh, when he started as an artist, up until 1942. And he used this technique, and it enabled him to hide his name in plain sight. Uh, but what I found was there had to be something more significant. So I took the... Uh, my painting, and I blew up his signature, the Rockwell signature. And I figured, what do you mean by geez, that? By, by in a photo, in, with a with a photo? I mean, when you say yes, I took I know. took a photo, a photograph of his signature that has it appeared on my painting, and I blew right. it up. And what I did was I I cut it in half, and I tried to see if it fit squarely on the bridge. And sure enough, um, the word rock as it appears straight across the bridge and well, if you turned it upside down, fit into the lattice work on the bottom half. So I realized that he did hide his name in paintings in some way, even though there, there is no record of this. And I wonder so, why is that com Was that a common, was, was that a common practice or was that just an intricacy of how he just did his art? I believe from, from subsequent work, I believe that this was a fairly common uh, practice for people who, uh, you know, learned about painting in the early 1900s. And I found this out by looking at some of the other artists that worked for the Saturday Evening Post. Uh, one of the names was Landecker, and uh, I was looking at some of Landecker's paintings. And I found his initials and name also hidden in the painting. Uh, there have been many famous artists over the course of history that hid messages or names in paintings. And it was an anti-forgery technique for, for the most part. They didn't want people copying their work. And by doing this, uh, they made it almost impossible to copy their work. Oh, that's very fascinating. How did how did you become interested in actually doing this? Did you know anybody else that was doing anything like this when you began this process? Uh, well, no, I really didn't. But I looked on the internet, and there was a website <laughs> uh, about 
uh, people, you know, other artists, and they showed how other artists had hidden in paintings. And there were, there were a lot of famous people, uh, a lot of famous artists did this. So, and so it began at that. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I let go. You, you began. I let me let you finish. <clears throat> yeah, I began to, I began to research and I wanted to know what was high technology in the 1930s, because if it was easy enough for me to figure out that he hid his name, you know, in a painting, there must've been a more impressive way or a more clandestine way to hide names in paintings. And in researching Norman Rockwell's background, I found out he was actually very interested in technology. And the 1930s was a period of rapid technological advancement in the field of photography. And Mr. Rockwell knew some of those innovations could be applied to painted art. And he came up with a new technique for hiding his name that would be much harder to identify than the M or the helmet shapes. And the the method he came up with would not be visible to the human eye. Um, And this one involved only a specific shape. And that was the shape of that bridge that connects his studio that burned to his home. Um, I also learned that in the 1930s, a fellow graduate from the Art Students Leagues by the name of Martin J. Weber was developing a variety of innovative methods for photography. And if you were to see Mr. Weber's business card, it was a drawing of a bellows facing, a bellows camera, one of the old style cameras, facing an artist's palette. And this underscored the melded, uh, the melding of painted and drawn art with photography. Mr. Mr. Weber and Mr. Rockwell must have known each other in some fashion. And in 1942, uh, Mr. Weber patented a technique called posterization. And this innovation, it's commonplace today. Everybody has it on their computers. If you look under some of the functions, it's called posterize. And Mm -hmm. what posterization does is it causes two-dimensional photographs to appear as three-dimensional images that almost spring off the page. And it's a technologically complex process that it's beyond, I don't think I will go into the, the technical things about it, but we all know, we've all seen examples of posterization. Wow. The most I, important I, I, thing about it is that posterization does not work on the colors. I'm sorry, you're, but you're fading out just a little bit. I didn't hear what you said. The posterization does not appear where? It does not work on the colors black or white. It only works on other colors. I see. Interesting. All right. Well, that that's that's an, that's something new. I wasn't aware of that. And I I am going to ask you. There's been times when you're fading a little bit in and out, and I your information is so important. I just want to make sure that the audience can clearly hear you. So um, when did you start this process? So you've got this idea. So what when did you actually begin this process? Well, once I once I realized in in twenty in the year two thousand in twenty sixteen, once I realized or I believed that I saw his initials in there, I I I, I got started on this. That was when okay. I blew I took the photograph and blew up his name and laid it onto the uh, onto the bridge and made sure that the name fit perfectly. But okay. one of the other things that I learned about Norman Rockwell was that during World War II, he was in the military, and he actually mm-hmm. made some World War II posters, a number of posters for the U.S. government uh, in support of the war effort. Now, one of the things I learned about technology in the 1930s was that something called steganography was a, was, was a big thing that – uh, especially the U.S. government was using in their posters. Now, steganography is defined as the art of hiding data, data in a cover medium. So once again, it goes back to 
the Boys Life magazine hiding a picture or a message within a, pic- a picture. Right. So I, I had to do some work and, and research into steganography. And like posterization, steganography is based upon color models. And people who people may be familiar with the color models RGB or CMYK. No. Those are the two most common ones. No. Tell me what that RGB is because I'm not yeah. sure. All colors are made, like when a, colors are mixed. RGB is a red, green, blue, and CMYK stands for cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. And from those basic colors, all other colors can be created. Now, uh, painters, painters and artists who use paint, paints are all CMYK based. And all electronic screens, like your television, like a camera, um, everything that goes electronic uses the RGB color model. Now, these models are actually mathematical scales. Uh, and they're completely different. And my best example that I could give you is, say, the RGB model, which is for all electronic screens and TVs, goes on fives. So it goes on number five, number 10, number 15, number 20. And the CMYK model uses the numbers one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, nine. 11, uh, 12, 13, 14, it skips us 5, 10, and 15 numbers that the RGB models will run on. And this gave Norman Rockwell an idea because he knew that if he created an RGB model paint in the CMYK color model, that it would not appear on any electronic screen or camera. And in those days, gorgeous work from from photographs taken with a camera. So he could hide his name in in a painting, and the forger would never know that it was hidden there if somebody went to forge his work. And that was was an important facet of his technique. Hmm. That's fascinating. I mean, go ahead. No, no, and see, because Norman Rockwell was learning about hiding pictures in pictures and they hid messages in the, in the war posters, you know, he was fortunate enough to be able to combine his knowledge of steganography and the different color models with this process of posterization. And when he hid his name in the paintings, my process reverses the things that he did and at the end of the process, when you hit the posterize function on today's computer, the initials pop up. And, uh, uh, and the best ones, they, they stand out in a very 3D fashion. That's, I, it, you know, I don't know as people are listening to this if some of this is making as much sense to you as it does to us that, that is not in this world that you're in. But it sounds like without the computer, you would be unable to do this. Am I correct about that? Well, I guess it, uh, Norman Rockwell actually had to test it. He did it with uh, Kodachrome film and <laughs> working in a dark room, uh, which, wow. which must have been a much more complicated process. Yeah, I guess. Wow. That's, uh, it's today interesting. Today my process takes the use of uh, mm-hmm. Adobe Photoshop and uh, another uh program called Irfan View. It's a, it's a downloadable software. And what it does is it takes, uh, it, it can work even off a photograph of a painting. You take a photograph and you convert it from uh, the RGB model back into the CMYK model. And in order hmm. to get the steganography to work, there, there's several other color models that are kind of obscure that people don't know about. But one is called the HSV, which stands for hue-separated value. And that's what they use to hide pictures uh, within pictures. So after you convert the photograph to uh, the CMYK model, 
you increase the hue and the saturation to certain levels and then convert it to the HSP model. And then the final step is you posterize the picture. Now, it took a lot of practice and a lot of uh, experimentation to figure out exactly, you know, what, you know, what levels on and what dials and controls on a program like Photoshop that were needed uh, hmm. to, to do this. But I found an article in uh, online, and it was something in the Journal of Tikrit, which is, I believe, in Iraq. And it was discussing the best way to hide uh, information within a picture. And that article uh, said that the colors cyan and magenta were the best colors for hiding information in pictures. And they also gave, uh, in, in that article, uh, the, an idea about what settings that I should use to make uh, the, the hidden messages, which in this case were his initials and his name and the year that he painted the painting, appear when I went through the process. So that was really how I figured it out, and it was really trial and error in the beginning. But that article helped it tremendously. How long did it take you in all of this research to complete this process? Uh, the process takes about five to ten minutes uh, per painting, in, incredibly enough. It's a very quick mm. process because we do it all on the computer today. I'm sure it would have taken somebody doing a much longer time if they had to do developing film. When, when you talk about the Rockwell Museum and sort of their inability to really help in the beginning days when your dad was involved in this, certainly I would think that any curator that has beautiful artwork would want to make certain that their art is authentic were they threatened by you or did they did they just not want to be interested what was the situation with the museum and you well i never it, at that time it was my father who was the person who took the painting to the museum so i don't uh -huh. think it was anything personally against me i just think that it it didn't fit into their their model of what his, his signature should look like Got now, it. Uh, Got we it. have been in contact with the Norman Rockwell Museum, and they are interested in this process at this point. Oh, they I would bet. like to know I... a little bit more about it. Um, you know, Norman Rockwell never disclosed to anybody uh, that he was using these anti-forgery techniques. But in my research, mm -hmm. I actually found that he did try to inform somebody at one point in his career and the uh, in in it's six years before he died in 1972 mr rockwell sent an unusual gift to one of his adoring fans and this gift was a, a painting it was originally used as an advertisement for chiffon bathroom tissue <laughs> and the Norman, the Norman Rockwell Museum archives call this piece metal letters attached to tissue paper. And it, it's a seemingly insignificant piece, but it was definitely Mr. Rockwell's attempt to disclose his anti-forgery techniques to the largest collector of his artwork, which was a family known as the Rosenbaum family. And if you were to see this, this painting, it, it's a, literally, it just looks like, a bunch of letters like decals laid on top of some toilet paper. But the, the letters actually are, are M-E-I-N-S. And if you fool around with spreading them out and turning the picture in different ways, it says, it's me. <laughs> and oh, I think funny. this is how he was trying to inform the, uh, you know, the Rosenbaum family that, that he had, hidden his name in authentic paintings and that they should look at it. However, they didn't seem to get it. And after Mr. Rockwell passed away, the Rosenbaum family donated the picture back to the Norman Rockwell Museum. Mm -hmm. without ever realizing it's 
That's that's a great story. Um, have other well-known artists incorporated similar anti-forgering techniques in their work as well now? Oh, boy, I don't hear you speaking, my friend. Okay, Robert? can you hear me now? Yes, can yes, you hear me sir. now? I can. Okay. Uh, you you left All me right. for a moment. That's always a scary thing on a live radio show. It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, what am I, I going to do? Is. <laughs> it is. I don't know so, what I happened know, there, did, but I'm with you. I don't either. So did you hear my question? I was asking you if other well-known artists ha- have incorporated similar anti-forging forgery techniques in their artwork. What I did was I started with other artists who had made posters for the government during World War II. And it was interesting to learn that several of them who had worked it for the government also worked for the Saturday Evening Post. So when I tried my technique on the work of uh, Leyendecker, who was a kind of... Right, you mentioned that. Uh-huh. And a, fellow, and a fellow by the name of Stephen Dohanos, who was a younger fellow, I believe he was more like Rockwell's protege, um, their paintings you know, after 1942 or after they work for the government, they do work the same way where you can convert them into the color models. Where it falls short is that the posterization part of Rockwell's process, he didn't disclose that to them or they didn't learn that. So yes, they, there are other artists that this does work for, um, but not the full process that, that Norman Rockwell employed. Got it. Well, so in speaking about art, because I really want to, I, I want to talk just a little bit more about your patent, because I also want to talk about your book, which I find really fascinating. Um, when was your patent? Because this is really, this is really earth shattering that you got this patent. So when was your patent awarded on this computerized process? Um, for Norman Rockwell's paintings. Sure. My my patent actually was issued in November of 2019, so just a few months ago, and it is the first patent of its type ever issued for authentication of artwork. Congratulations. Wow. Yeah, it's quite an honor. But initially I tried to submit the patent and go through all the patent paperwork by myself but every time I did, that there would be another problem that the, the patent uh, USPTO, the U.S. Patent Trademark Organization, would find it and it would get rejected. So I got to the first level of approval, but I couldn't get past there because they kept raising points of right. excluded mm-hmm. or something. So eventually I turned to the services of a patent agent. And I found a patent agent uh, who was willing to take this on because, once again, there had never been anything like this done. Uh, But I found a fellow who had worked with technology, and uh, he did a great job, and he got it filed properly and issued. Yeah. So from when you began this arduous process, the, the patent was awarded in November of 19. So not that long ago, how long did it take from the beginning to the actual awarding patent? Did that was that a couple of years worth of of time invested? Yes, it. it I, I mean, I tried for I guess about six months, and then once the patent agent got going, the whole process took about a year. So I'd say got about it. a year and a half, or a little bit over a year and a half, from mm. start to finish. In the patent agency, USPTO has a Uh fast-track method where if you pay a little bit more, they they prioritize your patent application uh, versus other people. And I certainly wanted to get this as quickly as possible. Absolutely. So that means that anyone that wants to do this um, to determine their artwork, do they need to go through you in order to determine the authenticity? Well, they don't have to. Uh, they certainly have the uh, people can still go through an art advisor or someone who uh, claims to be an expert in authenticating Norman Rockwell paintings. But obviously, the patent agency 
the government does not issue patents on things that don't work. And so uh, I would, I, I mean, I would certainly, if somebody wanted to authenticate a painting, I would be happy to entertain that. But my goal yeah. in this in this entire process is to sell my painting because okay. I've had it now for 20 years and okay. to sell the patent itself. Oh, no kidding. Wow. Why do you want to do that? Yeah. Is this time? Well, uh, first of all, the painting was purchased as an investment. So everybody has to have an exit strategy usually when they make an investment. And uh, mine it would be to exit now at this point in time. Um, with, the, with the sale of the patent, I guess that I could go around and try to go to all the museums and large uh, you know, people who have Rockwells in their own collection. But I think mm-hmm. this it would be uh, most important to either insurance companies, and that would be an insurance company who either insures museums or insures uh, Rockwell's work in particular, because Norman Rockwell's paintings are the most valuable of any American painter at this point. No kidding. The other people, yeah, well, uh, uh, there, are, there are several. The one that was sold recently a few years ago, for over $50 million. Of, of his? Yes, yes. $50 million. And 50, I think it's all for $54 million. Whoa, it's called the Saying Grace, and it's, a, it's just a scene of people, you know, just about to have a meal. Mm-hmm. And the two largest buyers of Norman Rockwell's works are Steven Spielberg and George Lucas believe it or not. All right. And wow. They are opening a museum. I think it's in Los Angeles. And it's going to open in a couple of years. And they are going to display all of the works that they have collected and purchased and collected in that museum. So they're, wow. they're also another potential buyer for this patent. And the third, the third potential buyer is uh, would be auction houses. Now, an auction okay. house has great liability if they auction off an imposter. <laughs> yeah, and I so guess. I would think that they would want to, you know, take a look at this because there is no doubt that my process works. And there mm-hmm. have been a couple of cases of, of fake or imposter Norman Rockwell paintings. There was a mm-hmm. painting done in 1954 called Breaking Home Ties. And there was an imposter where somebody had made a forgery and Mm. it sat even in the Norman Rockwell museum for many months before somebody realized that it was fake. Yeah. Wow. And so I was able to get a picture of the the real one and a picture of the imposter. And I put them to the test with my process and it Mm. worked perfectly. The initials NR did not appear anywhere on the imposter and they appear in the real painting, the authentic painting. So, wow. So could have saved somebody a lot of money there. And, mm-hmm. and you know, Norman Rockwell paintings go out on exhibits all the time. If you're an insurance company, you certainly want to know that what they're sending out is an authentic Norman Rockwell. And when it comes back from the other place, the other museum, <laughs> you want to make sure that it's a Norman Rockwell. Exactly. Oh, no kidding. Wow. Fascinating fascinating life but that isn't all you do because I also mentioned that you're an adventurer and you're an author and in these last 10 minutes or thereabouts that we have with one another and certainly we can talk longer if we need to and we'd like to you've written a book too because you don't you don't have enough to do so um, now <laughs> you've you've right so you wrote a book uh, called uh, Drake's Treasure and it was released I, – I was looking this up on the Internet. Um, it was released almost two years to the date of where we are right now. Did you realize that? that it was uh, I, I, I knew that it had book. been a couple of years. I didn't remember the yep. exact date that, that it was yes, issued. Yes, almost two years to the date that it was issued. And there's a story about that too, isn't there? Yes, there is. 
Do you want to share that? I'd love to hear it. The story of the book Drake's Treasure is about uh, an adventure that uh, took almost 20 years, and it has to do with resolving the unanswered questions about Sir Francis Drake's arrival at the place he named Nova Albion in the year 1579. And what's important about this is that uh, there were many unanswered questions having to do with the authenticity, uh, authenticity of the famous artifact supposedly left behind by Sir Francis Drake called the Plate of Brass. And the plate of brass is a small plaque, maybe three, a little bit bigger, maybe a four by six plaque, in which, in very crude metalwork, uh, Sir Francis Drake claims the land for England, for Queen Elizabeth I, and it has the date June 17th, 1579, on the plaque. Now, what got me interested in this was the plaque itself was found in 1936, three doors down from where my house was. What? It was found on the street that I lived on. Oh. And I knew nothing about Sir Francis Drake other than the fact that he single-handedly, he single-handedly defeated the Spanish Armada. That was what I, my recollection about Sir Francis Drake mm-hmm. was. So I didn't know anything about it, and... I, you know, I had to start looking at this when I found out that this famous artifact was found next to my house. And I started looking around the neighborhood, you know, to see if there was anything else that I might find. And the first thing that I found was probably about 100 yards below my house. There was a median that separated the upper and lower part of the street. And I was walking on there and I found what turned out to be a broken Aztec carving. It had been weathered and had been sitting out probably for 400 years, you know, and I found it, I brought it home, I dried it out, and I took it to an artifact dealer in San Francisco who immediately identified it as a stone relief coming from an Aztec temple, and it was done sometime between the year 1500 and 1550. So I said, okay, there must be something to the story about Sir Francis Drake being here. So I started looking around, all around for anything, as as I would say, uh, that was, you know, oddly shaped, oddly colored, or out of place. And and I and I and I wandered around, and in in that in the course of doing that, one afternoon, I happened to go to the bottom of the, down below my house, there was a quarry and I was walking down in the quarry and I found these little metal, almost look like slugs. And I found a number of these things. And unlike a, the edge of a a quarter, you know, a quarter has a reeded edge. Uh The slugs all had different markings along the edges. So I collected as, I think I collected about six or eight of them. And I took them home, and I got some modeling clay, and I rolled those edges out. And lo and behold, it appeared to me that they uh, replicated the, the lines and the type of uh, lettering done on Sir Francis Drake's plate of brass. Now, the oh. plate of brass was a very controversial artifact, and it was considered... You know, after it was discovered in 1936, it was considered one of the greatest archaeological artifacts ever found in the United States. And it Mm -hmm. was owned jointly by the Bancroft Library of UC Berkeley and the California Historical Society. And the California Historical Society paid, I believe it was $3,500, which was a lot of money in 1936, to a fellow by the name of Beryl Shin, who found this plaque one day when he was having a picnic on this hillside overlooking the bay. And uh, <laughs> it was considered, it, was, it, it traveled all over the world. It was at World's Fairs. And then 
for no particular reason in the 1970s, people started saying that the plate of brass was nothing more than a fake that was used in a hoax uh, against uh, Dr. Herbert Bolton, who was a very famous professor at UC Berkeley. And so there was big question. There were some questions raised as to whether or not the plate of brass was a true artifact. And mm-hmm. as it turned out, because they could never find the tools that were used to uh, create the inscription on the plaque, um, it was passed off or written off as a fake, and, and it was status was downgraded. Well, as it turned out, I went. I found those those first tools. I went back and looked for anything else I could find there, and I found the entire set of tools that were used to make Sir Francis Drake's plate of brass. Whoa! Wait a minute. So let me understand this. You personally were doing this um, excavating. So you, what were? How did you? How did you? And it was like three doors down from where you lived, or this was actually at the home that you lived at, lived in. In, in nineteen in nineteen thirty six, the plate of brass was found with basically three doors down. There were no houses there at that time. Right. It right. was found three doors down from my house. Okay. And where I found the tools was it was not it was not on my property. It was at the base of the quarry. There's a a large quarry in Worksburg Landing. And I just had a feeling to, that I should go and look around there, and that was where I found them. Was um, there any? Was there any? Um, I'm just thinking the logistics of this. Did anybody know that you were doing this kind of digging, and did you have to get some kind of a permit, or how did you just start digging and with hopes of finding something? Well, you know, after I found this set of tools. Um, they did not require any digging. They had been somehow they had slid off of the top of the quarry and they were sitting at the surface. I didn't do any wow. excavation at all to find those. But then, you know, when I started, I said, "Wow, I've got this famous thing," and I started to pull up more information about Sir Francis Drake and uh, the Miwok Indians, and. The first picture that I pulled up, because I wanted to see what Miwok Indians looked like. Mm-hmm. And in the old days, JPEGs used to load very slowly, line by line. And when the picture came up, it turned out that the picture of Miwok Indians on the Internet had been painted from my backyard in 1816 by a fellow on the Katsuji expedition. And it was an unmistakable uh, scene. Wow. It was the same scene that I've been looking at for 15 years. So I knew there was a lot more to the story of Sir Francis Drake's arrival at Nova Albion than, you know, than than I'd learned about already or that had been told to the public. So that was what got me going on that. And it does involve an excavation of my property. I went down, I dug down in the deepest 36. Eat. And I had a lot of problems with with the, the, the town officials and with the police department because you are not supposed to do that without a permit, and I never took a permit. Wow. Yeah, I would imagine. And not to mention, I, I would think that this was loud and somewhat messy and, you know, uh, time-consuming and physically, I would imagine, extremely demanding, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I mean, it was very tiring, and uh, it wasn't as noisy as you'd think because once you dig underneath the ground, and uh, it you couldn't really hear anything outside of that. Um, I see. But it was physically demanding, and it I did this for about for, it, the project in total took about five or six years. Oh my gosh! And what I would what I would tell you is that. I found all of the artifacts associated with Sir Francis Drake um, landing there. And those important artifacts being the tools that made the plate of brass. Hmm. Uh, Supposedly, the plate was nailed to something called the Great Post, which I also recovered. And it is a huge tree stump that is covered with uh, 
Roman numerals that spell out the date, June 17th, 1571, and also the name of Sir Francis Drake. And it also has alchemy symbols all over it. And those alchemy symbols describe the smelting process that he used to smelt down the tons of silver and gold that he had taken from South America. So where are all those got, items? I've got a few things Gosh. That's what the book is about. And wow. I'm hoping to see this made into a, a little TV miniseries. I was thinking the same thing. That's so cool. <laughs> so I, I'm just curious because I know we're coming to the end of the hour, but I, I am curious about this. Where are all of those artifacts actually housed as we speak? Where where are those things? Or would you rather not say the the artifacts uh, I have them hidden away and stored away in various safe places, Good. some in a safe deposit box and and some in in another location. Under, well, I, but I have I the mean, great post like sitting to... in my living room because it's too heavy <laughs> for anybody to really pick up and take God. away. God, oh my gosh! Well, what an interesting life you've had, really. I mean. I I don't I didn't you told me you retired but I don't remember what year you said you retired when, when did you actually retire from actual work work because you started uh, in 2017. Wow, so you've been one busy man, but your interest didn't just develop in 2017. Clearly, these these topics have always been very very interesting to you, and how how amazing that happenstance had it that you were able to locate these uh, artifacts that you've able to write about them in your book which is called um just just to, just so that people will remember it's called Drake's Treasure on uh, I will make sure uh, Robert that um when I write a blog about our show together today that I will hyperlink on this information on my blog for people to go and investigate and learn more about you. I I do see it as a mini series of some sort because I think it's for history buffs I think it's fascinating. And I have no idea when you've gotten this far with your life and retirement what you're gonna do next. Do you have a do you have another book in mind or do you think you just want to travel and go sit on the beach somewhere and sit under a palm tree? Well, there, there is one other project that I'm working on, and it's something that's kind of ancillary to the Sir Francis Drake work. But uh, the people by that were called the Paleo Indians, and these people were really cavemen. They lived around the San Quentin Peninsula, according to UC Berkeley, eight to ten thousand years ago. And I have been researching the Paleo Indians and their their history and their lifestyle for the last several years. And as it turns out, these cavemen were technologically advanced people that had the ability to work with glass and, and some metal because there is a dormant volcano on the property of San Quentin Prison that served uh, as their God. They prayed to the volcano and every a couple of thousand years, it would blow up, and it's an unusual type of volcano because it is not a lava volcano like in Hawaii, mm -hmm. as we would normally think of, but it's mm -hmm. a geothermal volcano. And Interesting. the geothermal chain runs from Point San Quentin mm -hmm. up to Geyserville, where uh, the Geyser's power plant is located, and that runs on steam power. So when this steam volcano blows up every couple of thousand years, hmm. it expels little pieces of glass, little pieces of metal, in this case primarily copper and iron, and the last thing it, it blows out is the pyroclast, which is a combination of a little bit of lava, a little bit of metal, and sometimes includes glass. So I've been looking at this, and... Uh, that is my next project, and I'm sure that will be an interesting story to tell you when it's completed. Well, that sounds great. And, um, you know, what is it? Is it the Dos Equis man? He's the most interesting man in the world. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. 
how I don't know if you've been compared, but um, what an interesting life you've had um, when you de- when you devote so much energy into something that's a passion. And um, I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time to share that story uh, with the listeners because um, it, it's really interesting, and pe- especially. The, the technology people that listen to this show, I'm sure they're going to want to check this out and get in touch with you. And I'm just really thankful and grateful that you were, you know, able to join me today and tell your story to my listeners. It's really quite quite the story. Well, thank you, Marcia. I, I might add that if anybody wants additional information, I do have websites for both the Rockwell uh, work and for the, the Drake work. The Rockwell yes. work, it's www.rockwellauthentication.com. And the uh, work on Sir Francis Drake is under www.drakestreasure.com. Uh, you, those are you both are on right. the Internet. Yep. They're both really interesting sites. I will make sure that I include both of those sites if somebody is listening and didn't grab it all at one time. Please visit my website, which is, as long as you're throwing out the W's, which is the www.borntotalkradioshow.com, and you'll be able to pick up those um, websites there. And I guess I would like to just conclude by just doing a little bit of a commercial about myself. Um, in the 2020 year, I'm really trying to have a new vision of what I do. I'm uh, approaching my. Um, two-year anniversary as a podcaster on Blog Talk Radio, but I'm also approaching my five-year anniversary as the host of the Born to Talk Radio show when I was in the studio for the first three years. So if you're listening and you would like to subscribe to my website, which is so simple to do, by doing that, it will allow you to receive a newsletter because I don't have enough to do. So now I'm going to produce a newsletter, and I say that totally joking. Um, But I am going to be producing a newsletter that will be recapping my shows each month. And so people can give – maybe they've listened to your show, but now they've noticed that there was another show the week before that was all about – um, um, living your best life, or uh, uh, lots of nonprofits that I have as guests. So I'm going to be doing that as well. So I would encourage you to check out Robert's uh, websites, but also don't forget to check out mine and just go ahead and subscribe, and then you will be added to that list. But in the meantime, I look forward to to that next book. And please, when you when when they do decide to make this into a, a, a little a mini movie, um, by all means, let me know so we can we can let everybody know. But I I do want to thank you so much for your time today. It, it's it's really been a pleasure, Robert. Thank you so very much. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on your show, Mark. Okay, and for that, I'll just wish you all a great week wherever you are, and don't forget to tune in next week. Next week, my show is going to be with Kate Moynihan. She's um, the executive director of the SEVA Foundation, which is started by Ram Das many years ago, and it's about providing sight. It's it's all about vision, and it's going to be sensational. So, like I said, it's a, it's a multitude of interesting guests week after week. What's your story is what my show is all about. So until next week, everybody, have a great week, and bye-bye for now. <laughs>